Active Motiv Podcast Episode 3 Cancer and Epigenetics Welcome to the third episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motiv. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support team of Active Motiv. Our special guest in this episode is David Jones from the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. Therefore, I'm happy to sit down with you here in your office at the DCAF set. Uh, thank you, David, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. I'm very happy to be here and uh, happy to talk about this very interesting subject. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. So you were born in the UK and studied at the University of Cambridge, where you also re received your PhD in the year 2009. You then moved to the German Cancer Research Center in 2010 to do your postdoc in the Division of Pediatric Neuro-Oncology with Professor Stefan Pfister. And since 2012, you are heading your own group, Glioma Genomics and Molecular Diagnostics. The focus of your work has always been cancer in general and also childhood brain tumors in particular. So what drove your interest in these specific areas of research? Well, I think um, my interest in cancer really stemmed from the fact that it's such a, a challenging and interesting problem. There's really so much that we still need to learn about this disease. And when people say cancer or tumor, they sometimes think about it as one big thing. But actually, there are so many different types of cancer and different tumors with so many different um, causes and different underlying biology that it's a really uh, a very um, challenging and complicated problem to look into. And it's also such a common disease that we all either personally have been affected or know somebody who's been affected by it. So I think that's also an additional motivation then to try and see whether we can find something that's going to make a difference. So in recent years, you focused more on childhood brain tumors. So did you always want to focus on, on these areas of research or was it more opportunity driven that you ended up now in doing this kind of research? So ending up there originally was essentially by chance. I was working um, in a laboratory in Cambridge that had partially a focus on childhood tumors as actually a, a small part of a, a bigger brain tumor laboratory. Um, But now I'm very fortunate that I did have that opportunity to work on childhood brain tumors. And I think that um, I'm completely hooked and can't imagine myself doing anything else now. It's a very uh, interesting and exciting field to be working. So let's move on to cancer in general. So the whole field of cancer and especially cancer genomics has grown a lot in the past 20 years. So when comparing a PubMed search, I did, I did the search and for the term cancer genomics, one will find about 160 publications in the year 2000 and uh, we end up with about 4,200 in 2016. So what do you think is the basis for this development and huge growth? Is it merely a technology-driven change uh, like sequence equipment and things like that or does it also reflect the change in the overall approaches that were made? So I think it's a, a combination of both. I think that certainly over recent years, the general mindset and approach to tackling cancer as a problem has changed and it's become even more of a focus area in people's minds that it's something that we need to invest more in trying to find a solution. And certainly um, things like online and television fundraising for cancer is now much bigger than it used to be. But certainly the largest part is is the technology. And it's really amazing to see the changes that 
have occurred in the last 10 years or so. When we think back to when I was starting my PhD, there was no way I could have imagined what we're doing now with the technology that's available and how much it's changed even in that relatively short period. So what would you then consider as the biggest barrier that needs to be overcome now to achieve uh, further goals or future goals uh, in curing cancer, particularly also with focus in brain cancers? Well, I think the, the biggest issue that we're facing now is that the genomics technologies and those new platforms have allowed us to learn much, much more about the basic biology underlying cancer than we ever thought possible previously. And we have huge databases of um, lists of mutations and alterations in many, many different types of cancer. But we have to figure out a way now to turn that wealth of um, basic knowledge and on the science and the biology of the tumors and how we can convert those into better therapies, more targeted therapies in the future. So we're starting to now see some new approaches coming in as well, things like immunotherapy, so using the body's immune system to treat cancers. And I think that sort of really novel approaches like that are going to be more important in the years to come. So I've always been wondering, because there are so many data sets already available, do you think it's more a challenge of analyzing all those data sets to, like, to the full extent, or is it also a challenge to get new data from, for new, from new experiments? Um, so still a combination of both. I think that on the DNA level, so if we look at um, relatively simple sort of point mutations or smaller changes in the DNA, The catalogs that we have now are very extensive, especially for the more common tumor types. And the problem there is really finding the resources and the energy to be able to um, fully understand all of that information and convert it into knowledge which can be translated into the clinic. But particularly for some of the rarer cancer types where it's harder to collect that material, we still need to generate that type of data. And we're now investigating additional levels of um, biology beyond just the DNA, so looking at changes in the RNA and changes in the epigenetics, so the modifications of the DNA. In this context, you were also among the authors of a study published in Nature Communications in 2015 titled A Comprehensive Assessment of Somatic Mutation Detection in Cancer Using Whole Genome Sequencing, carried out in the context of the International Cancer Genome Consortium. Um, so can you shortly explain what this consortium is all about? Yeah, the ICGC, um, it's a, a collection of um, large um, groups and laboratories across the world who are involved in next generation sequencing. And the aim of the consortium was to bring those groups together and coordinate um, the efforts a little bit more, especially in the early stages of when we were starting to apply some of these technologies so that we could really work together, make sure that um, people were focusing on different areas rather than replicating the same work just on the most common tumor types and share that knowledge and expertise that was being gained and really uh, spread that across the globe. So that everybody can do what he can do best, right? So Yeah, exactly. So to really uh, specialize on certain focus areas and make sure that we're all um, not competing against each other doing the same thing, but there's still a a lot of um, problems to tackle and work to be done. So it makes sense to have that uh, done in a more coordinated way to make sure we're getting the most out of the um, resources and funding yeah. that's available. So what was the goal of this specific study you carried out or published in 2015? 
So there we were trying to look at how um, variable the different sequencing technologies and the different methods that um, labs were using to generate next generation sequencing data. So we started with really exactly the same DNA sample. So from one um, specific tumor and a matching blood sample, we extracted DNA and sent that to a number of different groups around the world. And they then um, sequenced it according to their standard processes that they developed and analyzed also according to their um, algorithms for assessing sequencing data. And we wanted to see how um, variable the results would be at the end when you start from exactly the same DNA sample in the beginning. And what were then the results? What did you find out? Well, it was actually um, a lot more variable than we were expecting. So we really found that at all different stages of that process of going from the extracted DNA to having a list of um, genetic alterations at the end, almost every step of that process from generating the sequencing library, um, how uh, much sequencing data is being generated, and also all of the different analysis steps really um, contributed a lot to the variability that um, there was still a, a core overlap in the results at the end, but there was also a lot of um, variability and, and differences between the different groups. So I guess you did not expect this kind of outcome, right? Um, we expected to see some differences, but I think the scale of um, how much some of these factors can influence the results at the end was, was surprising. What would you then conclude from these um, studies and what would be the goal for future future studies or what would you Yeah, tell the future studies to, to do based on those results. Well, I think um, one of the outcomes, and that's, again, one of the um, goals of the ICGC consortium is to really make sure that we're sharing this information and having it um, openly available to other researchers around the world. So all of those data sets that we generated are now available for other groups to use and to analyze, and they can um, compare the pipelines and the algorithms they're using to what we got out of that. And I think that now that we have this kind of gold standard and we learned about the different factors that can affect the output at the end, especially as these same technologies are now being used in a clinical setting and really in real time for patients coming into the hospitals, it's important that we sort of globally try to share this information and set some standards of how we're doing it so that if you go into two different hospitals, you don't come out with completely different results at the end. So this then also goes in the direction of diagnostics, right? Yes, exactly. So that sequencing um, and these new technologies are becoming a, a more and more important part of the diagnostic process now. So there's this concept of um, personalized medicine where you really want to know exactly what is going on in each individual cancer instead of treating all tumors of one type with the same therapy and assuming that they're the same because we know that that's not the case. So your current focus of research is pediatric glioma? But in the past few years, you have also worked on a, a lot on medulloblastoma. Can you shortly describe which kind of cancer this is and what is the cause of this cancer? Yes, medulloblastoma is mainly a childhood tumor. It does also rarely occur in adults. And it's a, a tumor that arises in the cerebellum. So it's at the, um, at the back, at the base of the brain and controls a lot of the um, important basic functions of the workings of the brain. Um, we know that 
a small proportion of cases can be linked with hereditary tumor predisposition syndromes. Um, so genes which are being mutated in the germline, which give an in increased risk of um, developing certain types of tumor. But for the majority of cases, um, as far as we know, it's, it's just bad luck um, and there are no real clear environmental or other factors causing it. So it's something that um, we're also looking into now whether there are other factors which can increase the risk of getting that um, this type of cancer or whether it's really just a sort of a lottery. Yeah. So this is uh, not a, like a homogeneous tumor, but there are also subgroups. Um, how do they differ and how much are there? So it's not like there is one mutation and it causes all the cancer, but there are, I guess, different ones. Yeah. Um, so medulloblastoma, The term is something which is defined originally by the histology, so how the tumor cells look down the microscope. So when the pathologist looks down the microscope and sees a particular pattern of the uh, shape and arrangement of the cells, that's what the diagnosis of medulloblastoma is based on. But what we know now, having looked in more detail into the underlying biology of those tumors, is that although they might look the same under the microscope, they can actually um, have very different causes and behave very differently as well. So we now split medulloblastoma into four main tumor subgroups, each of which have different um, pathways disrupted in the cancer cell. And they also have um, quite different prognosis. So your chances of Uh, survival with the current therapy can differ a lot depending on the precise biology of the tumor that you have, which is a concept which is becoming more and more widespread now, this idea that even though things might um, look the same and have the same name, that actually the underlying biology can vary a lot between individuals. In your 2012 Nature publication titled ICGC Pet Brain Dissecting the Genomic Complexity Underlying Medulloblastoma, you and your co-workers found genes that were not previously linked to this um, type of cancer and also that chromatin modifiers were frequently altered across all medulloblastoma subgroups. Furthermore, in the same year, you were among the authors of a Nature letter titled Driver Mutations in, in Histone H3.3 and Chromatin Remodeling Genes in Pediatric Glioblastoma which also saw epigenetic factors involved in glioblastoma. So moving now more to the epigenetic part, what kind of chromatin factors did you see involved there in glioblastoma? Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the, actually the most striking and most unexpected findings of a lot of the um, sequencing studies which have been um, conducted over the past few years is just how frequently these epigenetic-related genes are modified in all types of different cancer. I think the particularly interesting in the pediatric glioblastoma is that it's not just the um, chromatin remodelers or the genes uh, putting marks on the different histones, but really the histone genes themselves which are mutated at, at quite a high frequency. So the, the histones around which the DNA is being packaged um, get modified in different ways to, to change the function of how the DNA is packaged or um, read by the transcriptional machinery. And in glioblastoma, we really see some of those core sites which are being um, usually being modified, um, actually being physically mutated in the DNA and fundamentally changing the epigenome within the cells. So this would be then H3K27M mutation, right? 
Yes, that's the, the most common one in um, pediatric glioblastoma, particularly um, glioblastomas arising in a part of the brainstem called the pons. So there's a tumor called um, DIPG, so uh, pontine glioma, which almost, almost all of the cases of that tumor type harbor this particular K27M mutation in histone 3, and it seems to really fundamentally reprogram the whole uh, epigenetic um, system going on within those cells. So why are those chromatin modifying enzyme important enzymes important in this context or those mutations? What do they change then in the end? So for K27 at the moment, what we think is um, one of the primary consequences is that this K27 uh, position is normally being modified by um, the poly polycomb repressive complex. And when you have that mutation here, the complex still uh, binds to the DNA and tries to add the methylation marks to that position. But because it's a methionine instead of a lysine, you can't have that modification added onto the histone anymore. And you almost get the, the polycomb complex essentially being stuck in those places, thinking that it should be there doing its job, but unable to perform that function. And that leads to a global loss of that um, mark on the histone in the rest of the um DNA within the cell. So do you think this uh, pattern could also apply to all kinds of cancer? Absolutely. I think that, um, as I mentioned, this is really one of the, the most common things that we're seeing in all of the large-scale sequencing studies now is just how frequently many, many different um, types of chromatin-modifying enzymes and the, the chromatin machinery in the cell are being altered. And not just um, individually, but also sometimes in combination. So that's another very interesting aspect of the glioblastoma biology is that together with the histone mutations, we very frequently see co-occurring mutations in genes such as ATRX, which uh, change the packaging of the histones. And we don't fully understand yet why those mutations have to occur together. So you have this sort of combination of um, mutations in different genes which very frequently occur together within a tumor cell and we're just trying to understand that interplay and how they interact in more detail we also touched uh, epigenetics in tumor diagnostics like several minutes ago but moving more into this you are also currently investigating how epigenetic patterns and in particular dna methylation might be used to improve cancer diagnostics could you tell me more about this uh, concept yeah that's something that we're currently working on a lot um, which is using patterns of DNA methylation as a, a diagnostic tool for different cancer types. So we see that um, it's a very, very stable epigenetic modification. So even if you have tumor tissue that's been processed into um, paraffin and then stored for a very long time, it stably retains these marks and you can pick up these patterns after many, many years sometimes. So it's um, more suitable to this kind of routine diagnostic application than something like an RNA-based test where you really need good quality, fresh material to get good RNA out. So we're seeing now um, with the tools to be able to uh, measure DNA methylation evolving, um, we've profiled around about 20,000 brain tumors now uh, for DNA methylation analysis from more than 80 different individual types of um, brain cancer and we see that each of those um, different subgroups that we were talking about earlier so not just in medulloblastoma or glioblastoma 
but even each individual subgroup within that broader disease really has a very specific DNA methylation pattern and that can be used to distinguish between different types of tumour. Um, also for newly diagnosed cases coming into the, the hospital or the clinic to say, okay, does this um, DNA methylation pattern and what we know from the biology, does it match what we're seeing under the microscope and can we combine these different um, both the histology and the biology together into an integrated diagnosis. So there must be a lot of still possibilities there because there must be a lot of FFP samples being around in, in hospitals and, and things that store those, right? Exactly. There are huge archives out there. So being able to get this information from that kind of material really opens up a lot of additional possibilities of what we can investigate now. So as you say, they've been storing this material for for decades and it's um, unfortunately the, the pr uh, preservation of fresh frozen tissue is not always standard everywhere you go around the world but certainly there's the paraffin blocks most um, hospitals and most pathology departments have those available so now when we start getting down to tumor subgroups which turn out to be extremely rare maybe one in every few thousand patients that come into the clinic being able to use those archives and ask our um, collaborators and colleagues whether they can share that material is an extremely valuable resource how do you see the future implications of epigenetics in cancer research so yeah it's a it's a huge topic and it's a field which is expanding rapidly at the moment i think um Everybody, whether they originally wanted to or not, is having to learn a little bit about epigenetics now and how that relates because it's such a common theme across all of the different um, tumor types. So I think, I mean, there are several areas in which that's going to evolve now. The first one is really understanding more about basic biology and the things that are going wrong in cancer cells. So what turns a normal cell into a tumor cell and how does the epigenetic machinery play a role in that and what's really nice there is that um, it's something that's a little bit outside of the comfort zone maybe of traditional cancer biologists so it opens up a lot of possibilities for collaborations with other groups and we're starting to see really good interactions now between laboratories which were previously focused purely on epigenetics or on chromatin without a real um, focus on cancer And now the cancer groups finding mutations in some of these genes and starting to work together to um, share that knowledge and combine it into translation. And we hope that that really that's going to open up new avenues for um, treatment of some of these tumors, which we couldn't have anticipated before we start to um, get this additional knowledge about how common these alterations are. And then finally, as we've just discussed about um, with the diagnosis, I think that's going to start to become more and more important now that not just the um, mutations and to the changes to the bases of the DNA, but really the modifications on that DNA might be very, very specific um, within individual tumor types. And we can use that as an additional diagnostic marker. So I just thought of another question in, in concept with the diagnostics. How long does it take for until you get the sample and then... Uh until you get the result i mean how long is the span because i guess for a tumor patient it must be really crucial to get this results very quickly so at the moment we're in the range of around about two to three weeks between receiving the sample and having the uh, methylation 
um, profile produced and analyzed at the end, which is something we're working on to try to make that shorter. Um, but that initial period of a few weeks is often um, when the important treatment planning decisions are being made when the doctors are discussing with the patients after that initial diagnosis how the treatment and how the clinical management will be done um, for the rest of the care of that patient. So if we can keep it within those first sort of one to two weeks after the diagnosis, we hope that that's the time which really can have a, a meaningful impact on the decision making there. Yeah. So moving away from, from, from the epigenetics and the diagnostics, more to, to more general questions uh, that I have on the end. Um, how is it for you personally and emotionally um, to do science in such an area where you are confronted with such devastating diseases or the disease of cancer? Yeah, well, it's certainly something that um, keeps us very motivated. And I think especially now that we're moving into this area of being involved, not just in looking into the um, pure biology of the tumors, but also some of these more translational and diagnostic applications, it's brings that connection a little bit closer. So we're not just talking about um, anonymous specimens that are coming into the lab from many, many years ago, but we know that um, those cases are really patients who are being diagnosed at the moment in the clinic and coming into the hospitals within the last few days and are facing this big um, life-changing uh, diagnosis and information. So I think having that closer connection of the research really being linked in real time um, makes a big difference um, to how we have to think about it and how it's um, sort of keeping us grounded and motivated to get everything done as accurately and as rapidly as possible. And I think especially in the field of pediatric cancer, it's also really amazing to see, despite this um, really life-changing often um, information that the families and the patients are receiving that most of them respond in a very kind of driven way and bring a lot of energy into trying to fight this disease and also want to be engaged in the research and want to know how they can contribute and how they can push this further so it's a, a nice interaction there so it's more like the outlook of like a positive a positive way to cure the cancer that you think of then like the looking back and seeing well this is cancer and this is life-changing what you so this is maybe more what you focus on yeah so now we're really we we have learned a lot in recent years about um how these tumors in general are forming and the mutations in the bigger groups of um, cancers and now i think we're still um getting a lot of samples in but rather than treating them all as one group we're now moving towards a more individual focus and looking at each sample um, in a sort of personal way and saying is there something we can learn about this one sample which can really help that individual who's in the hospital now um, and maybe bring about a benefit for them on a more personal level you're part of large research consortia as we learned already like the icgz so is the way one has to do science nowadays or in the future joining forces in large hubs which then deal with an enormous amount of data? Is this the way science is going in the next years? Um, it's certainly the way part of science is going. And I think that there are some um, 
sort of initiatives or some programs which have to be done in that very, very large scale, internationally collaborative way, just because of the scales of the money involved and the access to the technologies and the machines that are needed for some of these initiatives. It has to be coordinated globally and has to be done in large consortia. But I think the nice thing about how those groups are organized now is sharing the data and making it available to other researchers is really a fundamental aim of how those um, initiatives are being set up. So although the first steps are being done in these large hubs, in these large groups, that data is then available to all of the other research groups around the world who might be um, focusing on a very particular um, subspecialty of that and can then use that information to help their own research. And that's then feeding back in as well. So as as we mentioned about the chromatin, I mean, people who have spent their career working on histone biology or a particular chromatin modifying enzyme in terms of the fundamental science and the biology and helping us to learn more about the functions of those genes, that we can now link those into um, having also a translational uh, impact and really that we're seeing those as being fundamental also to cancer biology is bringing these smaller groups in contact with these large consortia and we're learning from each other in these interdisciplinary collaborations. Coming to my last question now, what are your anticipated developments and what do you want to personally push forward in the next five years in your lab and also in the consortia that you're a part of? So for me personally, I think this um, uh, idea of really personalized medicine and translating what we're doing on the science side into the clinic is is really important. And I think if we can um, make a difference even to a small proportion of the patients who are coming in um, in a sort of real meaningful way, then that makes a big difference. Um, and we're also now seeing additional consortia starting up. So we recently started um, a consortia on a tumor type called low-grade glioma, which is one of the more common pediatric brain tumors, which has previously um, been relatively underfunded because it has quite a good overall survival. So the patients usually will survive their disease, but it can have a big impact in terms of the quality of life and how long the, the children have to then deal with the effects of having had that tumor. So we put together um, a big group between the UK and Germany um, funded by the Brain Tumor Charity in the UK to really start to have a big focus on these group of tumors and how we can minimize some of the long-term side effects of the many rounds of therapy that the children have to go through and really focusing on improving um, not just the extent of the survival but really the quality of that survival and how we can make sure that the children have as few side effects from the treatment as possible. And then here in Heidelberg I think we have a, a really nice new initiative that started now called um, the KITS, the Children's Tumor Center, um, which is bringing together both the clinical care and the basic research into one new building which will be built over the next few years and really getting the scientists and the clinicians to work together more closely and to interact and again improve that those links between the basic research and the translation into patient, uh, patient benefit. So it's also really nice to be involved with the um, beginnings of that initiative and see how that evolves over the next few years. That sounds very interesting. 
I thank you very much for being part of this show. These were all my questions and thank you very much for being available and being part of this show. Thank you. Thanks. This was the third episode of the Epigenetics podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at eurotech at activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. Just look for the Active Motif podcast there or find the subscription button on our website. If you wish to stay current on epigenetics research, please subscribe to our newsletter on the Active Motif website on www.activemotif.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.